0: You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello, and welcome to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet, coming to you from Greeley, Colorado. It is May 9th, 2021. This is episode 114 of the Gary and Ashley Mullet Show. Today we're going to talk about C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, published in 1938, 1943, and 1945. As far as I know, there are only three confirmed books in the trilogy, although Wikipedia tells me there was another book that Lewis had planned on writing and publishing in the series he had started a manuscript as the story goes for another one called the dark tower and other stories that one was disputed but other contemporaries of lewis affirmed that it was an authentic manuscript or an authentic addition to the series that lewis had been working on they had seen him working on it But so far as we know, there were three that were published. Whatever else was not published, we will not concern ourselves with that. I just yesterday finished reading the third of the three that are confirmed that were published by C.S. Lewis in the 1930s and 1940s. Out of the Silent Planet is the first book of the series. It involves a trip to... Mars and the silent planet is another name for earth. Paralandria is the planet Venus and that second novel in the series was published 5 years after the first and that hideous strength the last book in the series has a subtitle of a modern fairy tale for grown-ups. It's called the space trilogy but It's not like any science fiction I've ever read because it doesn't confine itself to technology and traveling around from planet to planet and aliens and things like that. It does concern aliens to some extent, but there's a blurred line between science fiction and fantasy in the Space Trilogy series. It's an interesting take on the genre And I want to, in no particular order, talk through some of the themes of the Space Trilogy. One, first off, right out the gate, I'll note that this is not written in the same tone and tenor as The Chronicles of Narnia. The Chronicles of Narnia reads much more like a children's series. It's not dumbed down, but it is more sanitized or more friendly or more gentle maybe and the space trilogy is a bit more stern a bit more dark a bit more graphic a bit more grotesque in some places the evil is more evil and to some extent the good feels a bit more good by contrast it's interesting how that goes sometimes You can be a good example, or you can be a horrible warning, but sometimes morality plays and spiritual allegory are all the more effective, not less effective, for including the stark contrast between good and evil, between light and dark. But for modern readers, modern viewers of media who are used to thinking that Christian fiction is sanitized, or too tame, or boring, or what have you, or for Christians who are inclined to have a sort of knee-jerk reactionary response, dismissing all media, all fiction, all stories in print, on television, in movies, which contain references to nudity or sexuality you might be surprised if you're a fan of c.s lewis's other works fan of his christian writings his nonfiction, or if you're a fan of his chronicles of narnia series you might be surprised to note that the space trilogy contains quite a lot of nudity and a fair amount of at least philosophical references to sexuality. There's not a lot of gratuity in that we don't have explicit scenes portraying sex acts or anything like that, but there definitely is sexual content alluded to and sex is talked about in the Space Trilogy. And I wasn't expecting that. I was surprised by that, quite frankly. In the first two books, particularly in the first book, Out of the Silent Planet, the setup is this. The main character, named Elwyn Ransom, is taken to the planet Mars. He is kidnapped, more or less, by some men who have built a ship that allows them to travel through space from Earth to Mars. And these men are not good men, they're bad men, they're corrupt men, and they don't particularly like Ransom. And so they think he'll do just as well as anybody would as a human sacrifice. They think they need to go to Mars and make a human sacrifice in order to initiate some kind of a higher relationship, closer relationship with these creatures that are found there on the planet Mars or as it's known in the book, Malachandra. Ransom ends up not being a human sacrifice, spoiler alert, but once he's on the ship and also when he's on the planet, Malachandra, he is in the buff because apparently that is something that you didn't know about space travel. People travel through space naked. I didn't know that. I've never seen that in... Any other work? On the planet Malakandra, Ransom goes around in the nude. When he is on Paralandra, he is also in the nude. Because apparently if you don't have to wear clothes, why wear clothes? There's a kind of Edenic throwback. And I've talked before about my friend Phil Langefeld in high school, how in his 20s and now in his 30s, He's taken to veganism, and he has an argument for veganism, at least for vegetarianism, that Adam and Eve didn't eat meat in the garden. In fact, humanity wasn't given permission by God to eat meat until Noah and his family got off of the ark after the Great Deluge. Therefore, we weren't originally made to eat meat. Therefore, why eat meat? Let's have things be like they were in the beginning. Let's just have a plant-based diet. That'll be healthier. We'll be happier. And that's closer to what God originally intended. My counterpoint to that has been that Adam and Eve didn't wear clothes originally either. And so if we're going to be really originalist, does that mean we all need to be nudists? Are we going to be vegetarian nudists in order to try and have our throwback to this Edenic existence that humanity was originally created to enjoy, roaming around in the garden, eating fruit, and being naked. Lewis seems to take that idea seriously and put it into his space trilogy. Now, the third book, That Hideous Strength Set on Earth, does not contain quite so much nudity. It does Some, and there's not a lot of bashfulness when nudity does show up, certainly on the part of the narrative. The nudity is not given a negative association necessarily with corruption, evil, perversion. In fact, Lewis goes to pains throughout all three books Out of the Silent Planet, Paralandria, and That Hideous Strength. To unpack a little bit the distinction between nudity and sex, nudity might be in many cultures corrupted by sexual immorality and the sinful human nature which we now inherit from Adam, but that doesn't mean that it was originally so and that doesn't mean that it necessarily must be so in the present. And that's an interesting line of thought to follow, particularly when a lot of media, a lot of visual media, as soon as it flirts with a dress code other than what you might have found in the 1950s or even before, discerning Christian commentators are quick to say this is not wholesome, this is not appropriate, this has no business. Being viewed by Christians. In the case of Renaissance art, I remember my class with Dr. Clevenger at Cedarville University in which we were studying art, art history. It was our intro to the humanities and he wrote a whole handout dealing with the subject of nudity and he told us up front, We're going to be looking at paintings, we're going to be studying paintings and statues in the course of this class, this semester, which contain nudity. And we are not going to blur that nudity out. It is part of the artwork, and it wouldn't make sense to be prudish about it. And I remember reading this, I have it somewhere still in a file, I'm sure. But he talked about fully expecting to receive contact from parents of college students, parents of students who had grown up in homes where nudity was categorically abolished and censored and rebuked and repudiated, and he fully expected to hear from parents and from students, and so preemptively, from experience, he was going to write this little handout, which you should read before you contact him, in which he would explain his... Interpretation of the various passages pertaining to nudity in the Bible. For instance, he pointed out Adam and Eve in the beginning were naked and unashamed, and it wasn't until sin entered the world that they realized they were naked, but prior to that, there was nothing untoward about it. In fact, God made them naked didn't originally give them clothes and when God looked at his creation at the end of the sixth day he saw that it was very good that is to say nudity and all it was very good but of course you fast forward and after the deluge after the great flood Noah and his family are the only human beings alive on the earth all other life except that which was in the ark is destroyed And when they get off of the ark and they begin to settle again on the earth, on the dry ground, Noah plants a vineyard for himself and he grows grapes and then he makes wine out of his grapes and he proceeds to get himself drunk at a certain point. Now, why he does this is open to speculation, but the fact is the text recounts that he does it. He makes himself some wine, and he gets himself drunk. And while he's drunk and passed out, he happens to be naked, at least according to one interpretation of the passage, if you take it literally. Some people argue for a figurative interpretation of this passage, and they say that there's something else going on here besides literal uh, nakedness. He's not just laying exposed. But taking it at least on the face of it, Noah is exposed and one of his sons comes and finds him and sees him naked and then proceeds to go and tell his brothers as if to make sport of their father, as if to make fun of him, as if to mock him. Hey, check it out. Look at dad. Isn't that hilarious? Isn't that funny? Now the two other brothers, rather than joining in mocking their father, grab something to cover him and they back in and they cover him up without looking at him and that's that but when Noah wakes up he hears about his one son having mocked him and he pronounces a curse on that son who had mocked his nakedness. So then Christians according to Dr. Clevenger would say that that right there is a sign that nakedness is shameful and that it needs to be covered at all times and that if we don't cover our nakedness or if we uncover anybody else's nakedness or if we see that, if we don't shy away from it, then we deserve to have a curse pronounced against us, possibly, maybe, kind of, sort of. Clevenger clearly thought that that was a lot of superstition and nonsense and not particularly good exegetical interpretation of the passage and indicated that it really wasn't the nudity first and foremost at issue here. It was the disrespect. It was the response of the one son to mock his father. That was really the heart of the problem. And then he fast forward. And he talks about David, David dancing in the streets, in celebration, in, at best, his underclothes, and not particularly presentable, as you might say. His wife, Michal, daughter of Saul, rebukes him for this, tells him that he is disgracing himself, he's being shameful, she's embarrassed of his conduct, And he proceeds to rebuke her and to put her away. David sees nothing whatsoever wrong with his conduct because he was worshiping God. He was celebrating the fact that God had given them victory. And he rebukes Michael, Mikal, however you say it, puts her away and decides to take another wife instead. He's done with her. And it's probably not the first such interaction it was probably one of many such interactions between David and his first wife that he finally just said, that's it. I'm done with you. This is not working. And again, it was a respect piece, interestingly enough, on the hand with Noah and his son and on the hand with David and his first wife. That isn't to say that David was right to put his wife away for such a trivial reason, but he did. That's what he did. That's what happened. Now, we don't have a prohibition, so far as I know, on nudity. We do have illusions made in the text that uncovering nakedness is a kind of euphemism or it's a kind of way of describing sex. Also see laying with or knowing in the biblical sense someone. Those are allusions to sex, sexual intercourse. But it doesn't necessarily follow that all nudity is sexual in nature. And I've really struggled with that growing up in a home that believed in modesty, believed in covering your body and being private and not showing a lot of skin. My dad was raised Mennonite. And that was one of the things that I think was a holdover from his upbringing was that Modesty has to do with covering the skin and not drawing attention to oneself. And I'll never forget, again, at Cedarville, a conversation that Lauren and I had with a friend of ours who was a missionary kid whose parents had been missionaries to other countries and other cultures where there are different attitudes concerning the human body and clothing and fashion. And I don't even remember what prompted the discussion but somehow it came up. Maybe I was talking about Dr. Clevenger's handout for Intro to the Humanities, but she asked this question which caught me off guard and that was, well, what if you are in Brazil or what if you are in some African nation? What if you are in some island nation where being fully clothed means a loincloth? What if you're in a country where the fashion is to wear very little to nothing when you go down to the river or when you go to the beach? What if the fashion is to not wear much clothing at all in those settings and so nobody is drawing particular attention to themselves dressing that way? If you cover up everything just like you were in some other culture doesn't that draw more attention to yourself and that's an interesting point that's a that is a fair question to ask and i'm still not sure all these years later 14 15 years later what the answer is definitively but it's an interesting question to ask is it a cultural thing is it a subjective thing or a relative thing to some extent? Is it really more about what's at the heart of our fashion choices, however much or little we cover up? Modesty I've read and studied a little bit as a topic really doesn't have as much to do with what we're wearing as it does why we're wearing it. It's more of an attitude of the heart and it's more Of a question of intentions are we trying to draw attention to ourselves look at me look at me look at me look at me if so you can wear a sackcloth you can wear a potato sack and be covered head to toe from chin to the soles of your feet not even show your wrists or your ankles and you could still be immodest in fact if you're dressing like that to draw attention to yourself then you are, by a more traditional definition of the term, you are being immodest because you're trying to draw attention to yourself. If you're dressing to blend in and to be considerate, then not so much. Even if in one culture you would be drawing attention to yourself because the fashion choices of diverse cultures are so markedly different, Drawing attention to yourself in one culture might not be drawing attention to yourself in another culture, and vice versa. That gets complicated, obviously, and I don't have all the time in the world this morning to unpack it still further, but suffice to say, C.S. Lewis's choices on nudity and fashion and frank discussions of the body and sexuality in the Space Trilogy introduce some food for thought and grounds for discussion among Christians who are fans of his other work. If ever his books in this trilogy were to be made into a series of movies or a television series, I think that the whole VeggieTales crowd of Christian consumers would not let their children watch them. I think that is pretty safe to say. I think VidAngel would not permit them to come into your home. I think that there would be a lot of angry denunciations among the very proper, established, conservative Christian community in America, at least. And I'm not 100% sure that that would be correct. I'm not saying it would be incorrect, but... I'm always cautious where our reactions to things are based on tradition. If we can't defend our response from the text, from God's word, if we can't definitively say, thus saith the Lord, but we can point to our aunts and uncles and our grandparents and our great-grandparents and a long line of ancestors who would agree with us, What are our real reasons for being for or against something? Again, to use my dad's side of the family as an example, we grew up in a dry house. There was not alcohol in our house growing up. And that's in large part because as a family, the mullets did not affirm alcohol. In fact, all of the verses that talked about drunkenness, Old Testament and New, They took one step further and said, those are a prohibition on alcohol in general. Well, not all alcohol is consumed to the point of drunkenness. So then, is this a situation where we're throwing a baby out with a bathwater, saying that all alcohol is corrupt, sinful, evil, just because drunkenness is Well, again, your reasons for consuming will have a lot to do with deciding, determining how you consume, whether you consume to excess, whether you are drinking to excess. If you are drinking to get drunk, then that is one thing. But that doesn't mean that all people who drink intend to get drunk. In fact, I would say the majority of people do not drink to get drunk in cultures where alcohol is culturally accepted. In our culture, it's complicated, and we have prohibition partly to thank for that, the temperance movement partly to thank for that, those campaigns against drunkenness, against husbands and fathers, employees, factory workers, coal miners, etc., drinking on the job, being worthless because they were drinking so much so often, I think those public relations, public awareness campaigns have done a lot to imprint on the American mind that good Christian people do not drink. It might have been repealed, that amendment to the Constitution, which forbade alcohol, consumption, distribution, etc. That might have been repealed in the Constitution, but it has not been repealed, that prohibition within the conservative Christian community in this country. Perhaps a similar dynamic is at play with regards to nudity. I think of Renaissance painters like Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci. They were not particularly shy about portraying the human body unclothed. A lot of that had to do with trying to emulate Greek and Roman art, but It isn't just about being Greek and Roman. There's a lot of cultures which have had a fluid relationship with nudity. There are far fewer cultures which have said, human body needs to be covered up at all times, no matter what, end of of story, end of discussion. Fewer cultures have said that definitively, categorically, than have said, that it depends, context, situation. There was a story in Eusebius that I've been thinking a fair amount here about pertaining to a leader in the church who happened to be in a bathhouse cleaning himself because that's where people went to be hygienic in that day in the third century AD. If you were a Roman citizen and there was a bath, it was not your private bath, you didn't have a bathroom, you had a public bath, almost like a swimming pool, and the public bath was where a lot of people would go to congregate, to hang out, and they would bathe, they would clean themselves there. It was good hygiene, it was good manners, and that was just one of the places where people got together and conversed. But this leader in the church is there with some of his disciples, his compatriots, and a man known for false teaching comes in, and he's also going to take his bath, if you will. And this leader in the church gets up immediately and tells his disciples, let's get out of here quickly, lest... God, bring this place down on all our heads because this enemy of the truth has just walked in. Now, the first thing that'll catch your attention, obviously, about that story is that that's a very blunt way of dealing with somebody who is seen as a false teacher. That's not particularly diplomatic if you're trying to winsomely win your opponents over. It's very stark. It's very... Blunt. You're so much an enemy of the truth that not only am I going to say you're treading on dangerous ground, but I don't even want to be in the same building as you because at any moment, God could bring the whole thing down on your head. That's how precarious your situation is. I don't even want to be in the same building with you. Now, that's obviously the main draw, the main focus the main subject of that story but a side note which bears some examination is the fact that you have early Christian leaders making use of the Roman bathhouse were they wearing swim trunks do you think were they all covered up Methinks not I could be wrong I haven't studied this deeply I think not. For the Roman world, for the Greek world, it was not uncommon to have people unclothed in proximity to one another. They weren't naked all the time. But the Olympics originally, for instance, featured athletes competing in the nude. So how about that? Now when you turn on the Olympics, everyone pretty much for the most part is wearing some kind of a form-fitting nylon or polypropylene or whatever it's made out of uh, outfit. But it's usually very, very tight, and it leaves very little to the imagination. And if an ancient Greek were transported through time to our day and turned on the Olympics, I'll bet you he would ask, what exactly is the point? Are you really concealing all that much? I think he would shrug his shoulders and say, what's the difference? Gymnastics and swimming and volleyball and a number of other sports, wrestling. What's the difference? Well, a big difference is that culturally, we accept that these tight outfits, these form-fitting outfits are appropriate in that context. If you go to the swimming pool, we accept that we're not all dressed head to toe anymore, even though in other settings, in other contexts, we would be appalled for people to be dressed like that, to walk in dressed like that. It would concern us very greatly if a man walked in wearing only his trunks to buy some lumber at Lowe's. But if he walks in to the swimming pool wearing only some trunks, we think nothing of it. A few centuries ago, even the legs on the table and the chairs were being covered up lest Victorian English persons see those legs and be incited to lust. So obviously this can go too far in that direction to the point of absurdity where we say anything that even suggests the human body is concerning to us, we're that hypervigilant about it, and we end up drawing more attention to these things, ironically, by our outrage than we would if we just shrugged. Now, a missionary, to bring up the question that was asked to my wife and I 15 years ago or so, the missionary to some primitive tribe in the Amazon rainforest, or in the Congo, some primitive tribe wherein the men and women go around in loincloths all day and think nothing of it, that primitive tribe, if you're a missionary, needs to hear about Jesus. A lot of missionaries have spent a lot of time spending a lot of effort and energy and capital with their would-be converts, trying to convince them to wear Western clothing after their conversion. Now that you're a Christian, you can't dress like that anymore. You need to wear what I wear because this is what Christians wear. Does that necessarily follow? Is that sound? Is that appropriate? God will be the judge, but it's fair to ask the question. And even if we answer in the affirmative that that is appropriate, that is necessary, and that is good, we still should be Convinced in our own minds, and we should have good reasons for it. I'm not prepared to throw C.S. Lewis out just because he's got nudity and some conversation about human sexuality in his space trilogy. I'm not so sure what I think of his talk of a sexless future and how, when everything is at its good and its most pure, there is no concern for gender or sexuality as if gender and sexuality are social constructs, shall we say. I wonder what C.S. Lewis would make of this whole LGBTQ uh, propensity in our day, whether he would find that concerning or whether he would shrug. It's not any new thing that he didn't know about, but the way that gender is talked about in our day, the way that sexuality is talked about in our day, what would C.S. Lewis say were he alive? Who knows? Real briefly, I think that the Space Trilogy is well-written. It's clever. I'm still not sure what I think about magic in fiction, but he handles it in an interesting way. Merlin, spoiler alert, Merlin shows up in that hideous strength, and it turns out he has been put in a kind of cryogenic slumber stasis since the dark ages and he is awakened in the present and he comes to life and he wants to use magic to do battle with these evil people that are the villains in that hideous strength scientific think tank called nice or the national institute of coordinated experiments they're secretly in touch with demonic entities who plan to destroy organic life on Earth. And Merlin wants to enlist the trees and the grass and the rocks and the ground to do battle against them. And Ransom tells him in no uncertain terms, don't do it. Perhaps in your day it was still possible to do that thing without offending the Most High, but in our day it is no longer permissible. It doesn't work like that anymore. Now, not in so many words, but in my interpretation and understanding of the passage, uh, the scene, magic is corrupted now. And that's why God said we can't use magic anymore. Magic used to not be corrupted, but it has increasingly deteriorated since your day. And so we dare not use the magic of your day in our day. We're not allowed to. Well, that's interesting, right? That's an interesting food for thought right there. We know that in the Old Testament, God commands the children of Israel to put sorcerers to death. Necromancy is forbidden. Divination is forbidden. Magic is forbidden. Presumably because the source of the magical powers is fallen angels. Angels who have rebelled against God, lost their place, left their rightful place, as Jude says in the New Testament. And God doesn't want his people relying on fallen angels for their power. He wants his people relying on him. He'll intervene. You pray and you ask God anything after his will, anything in accordance with his will, and he will do it, he says. Don't rely on magic, you rely on God. God will step in if he thinks he needs to. Otherwise, you just work on being obedient and faithful. So, interesting stuff. Check it out. If you have read The Space Trilogy by C.S. Lewis, I'd like to hear what you think. Leave a comment. If you found this podcast episode shared on one of my accounts, send me a voice message on Anchor. If you follow the link to Anchor FM, the Gary Mullet Show on Anchor FM. You can send me a voice message and I'll air it on the program. And we'll talk about it a little bit further still in the future. But those are some of my thoughts on the Space Trilogy. I enjoyed it. I think you might enjoy it too. Let me know what you think of it. But for now, I got to run. We've got praise and worship we're helping with this morning. My oldest son is helping in the sound booth. And I am helping with the band leading praise and worship. So we've got practice at eight, which means that I should go make sure that at least my oldest son is awake and ready. But that's all we've got for right now. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.